folks, welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to our local business partners for helping to make this program possible, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's my grocery store, and you can do takeout for lunch and supper seven days a week. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa Farms and Iowa Producers. That's Hawk, H-O-Q, Restaurant. All right, so before we dig into the climate update that I need to share with you today. I just want to take a quick look at the program coming up here. We're going to be talking with Charlie Wishman. He's the president of the Iowa Federation of Labor. We'll also be talking with uh, Charles Goldman um, about uh, how as big oil is failing, the Trump administration is propping it up Soviet style. We'll also talk with Charles about the cancel culture, which um, well seems to be eating its own. Uh, see Margaret Sanger for details. And Kathy Burns will join us. We'll be talking about the uh, how, how labor unions are continuing to fight to protect farm workers. But first, uh, we're going to kick it off with a conversation about uh, climate change, as we always do, because climate is not an issue, folks. It's a crisis. And if you haven't embraced that reality by now, yeah, maybe the record heat wave that's scorching California would do it for you. Uh, you know, I, I saw an amazing image this weekend. Traffic cones that had actually melted into the pavement in Los Angeles. This past Sunday, what, that would be September 5th, 6th, I believe, September 6th, temperatures in Los Angeles County reached 121 degrees. Now, that's quite a contrast from when I was last there on March 1st of 2014, when it rained 10 inches and people were getting hypothermia in the streets, but traffic cones, I thought they made those things so that they were indestructible in cold or hot, but here they are, melting into the pavement in record temperatures. So currently there are over 20 wildfires burning across California. Uh, that's employing 15,000 firefighters. So maybe you could say that climate change is good for employment. So um, yeah, those firefighters have it really rough. Steep slopes, dry conditions, uh, flames that are just, you know, charging out of control in some places. And, um, you know, and look at the Pacific Gas and Electric. You know, you remember them, PG&E. Uh, you know, they, they, okay, so they've just cut off power to, I believe, 172,000 customers, if I read that correctly, um, in 22 different counties. And they did that in order to, quote, reduce the risk of an electrical line or another piece of equipment sparking life-threatening blazes amid high winds that raise the risk of fires. Well, so, you know, maybe PG&E has finally learned a lesson from the fires that its lines sparked uh, in recent years, including, of course, the, the very tragic Paradise Fire that killed 85 people. You know, so <laughs> that, that's good. I mean, that, that, that creates additional problems. For example, air conditioning when it's 121 degrees out. But, um, you know, at least some of, the, some of the community leaders are starting to, you know, unabashedly talk about the climate connection to these wildfires, to these crazy heat spells, to these traffic cones melting into the pavement. Uh, Leah Stokes, she's a professor and researcher on climate at the University of California in uh, Santa Barbara. And um, she was a guest this week on PBS's NewsHour and had this to say, and I quote, climate change is happening right now in California. 
and we have been lengthening the fire season quite considerably as we warm up the planet. In California, our fire season is now two and a half months longer than it used to be, which means that people are at risk all the time, and all that heat is really increasing the risk for fires. Now, for me, I found that very refreshing, and I wish more, quote, experts and public opinion leaders would speak that candidly. You know, Leah Stokes, she also says, there's a question. She gets a question about the fire that was started by people at a gender reveal party. And so the question is, you know, well, that was just human carelessness. So isn't it human carelessness that's starting these fires, not climate change? Well, Stokes says, and I quote again, it becomes so much more risky to actually have that spark light of fire under climate change. And that drought, which is caused by climate change, has led to a lot of vegetation dying, meaning there's a lot of brush lying around that can easily light up. And a little spark from a gender reveal party or whatever can end up being a massive inferno very quickly. So, of course, people need to be careful and be held accountable when they light fires. But the fact is, climate change is the real culprit behind what we're seeing right now. So my hat is off to Leah Stokes. I mean, that is um, spot on. And, you know, here's the PBS um, (laughs) reporter trying to downplay the climate angle. And here's Stokes coming right back and saying, yeah, this is climate change. I like that. Climate change is the real culprit behind what we're seeing right now. That, that's a truism that every media, business, political, academic leader, every one of those needs to repeat that, that truth over and over again until we finally wake up. And, and we better wake up soon. So meanwhile, on the cold side of the climate spectrum, there's a study released this week that confirms that the polar ice caps are melting at a rate that matches the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's worst-case scenario. And yeah, that ought to be scary. The study notes, and again I quote, scientists fear sea levels will rise by another 6.7 inches if the current rate of ice loss is allowed to continue. The melting of Earth's ice caps will contribute to increased coastal flooding, shifting ocean currents, and more frequent extreme weather events. Now, you know, I, I get criticized for always talking about the bad stuff you know, on climate. You know, and I, my response is, sorry, too bad. I am being honest. I am being candid. I am being straightforward with you. You know, there, there are folks who want to sugarcoat this. And, and no, I know I don't think it's hopeless, but it sure is bleak. And I've got to be honest with you, it is bleak. You know, so do I think we should just give up trying and enjoy the party while it lasts? No, absolutely not. You can never do that. Uh, practically speaking, we don't know how this is going to pan out. And morally, that would be the most objectionable response imaginable. Well, except for, you know, if you're Rex Tillerson heading an oil company. I guess that's the most irresponsible thing you could do is make, you know, lead an oil company. Okay, so yeah, never give up. You never give up. And there's... You know, and it's good to point out, there are good things happening. There are bold, inspiring individuals, organizations, farmers, small business people. There are lots of folks doing really positive and innovative things. And I came across a fascinating one (laughs) this weekend. Okay, Sergei, Sergei Zimov, he's a Russian guy. And he's got his son, Nikita. 
and I presume a team of people working with them. So they're carrying out an experiment in the Siberian tundra, and their goal, get this, is to restore the prehistoric mammoth steppe ecosystem. Their premise is that a grassland grazed by large herbivores will slow down the thawing permafrost, which is a big part of the problem with climate change right now. You know, that area right now is mostly large forest. Uh, you know, there's very little biodiversity, and, but there's loads of mosquitoes, apparently. And, and maybe you'll remember last week's program where I talked about the mosquito tornado. Okay, I guess that happens up in Siberia. Um, so the permafrost, that, that covers about 65% of Russia, the, that area of Russia. And that's thawing way quicker than scientists thought it would. And, of course, that's, what that's leading to is the release of a huge amount of methane, what some call the methane bomb. And remember, methane, methane is worse than carbon in terms of the short-term impact on climate change. It's so much worse. It's, it's over a 20-year period, methane will trap 84 times more heat than carbon dioxide. Methane is 84 times as bad as carbon, yet we tend to focus on carbon. But methane is what the permafrost is all about. So because of the melting permafrost, weird stuff is starting to come to light. Russian scientists, they recently found, get this, 30,000-year-old worms. And as when those worms were warmed up gently and lovingly in a, in a Moscow laboratory, they began to wriggle about. <laughs> so that kind of makes you think of Jurassic Park. Uh, so uh, yeah, careful out there in the tundra. And yes, um, the, the, the digging, the research, the transformation of this particular experimental plot, mammoths are also being exposed. Not living ones, just their remains. Um, but they have triggered Zimov's belief that, uh, that large herbivores are essential to maintaining the permafrost. And, you know, to me, that makes perfect sense. Now, again, resurrecting real mammoths, that would be so much fun. But it's uh, really what they want to do is re resurrect the ecosystem. And to do that, they've got to cut down a whole lot of large trees. And for that task, they're using tanks. So there's a story in um, Phys.org that says, quote, Recre recreating the mammoth's former ecosystem might seem like an impossible task, given that the creature has been extinct for 4,000 years. But for the Zimovs, this is a minor detail. They're concerned with ecological processes, the web of connection that produces a functioning ecosystem. And they're doing that by taking out the trees and restoring the grasslands. That reminds me of what's happening in Sahara, in, in, you know, in, in the Saharan Desert, where, I mean, that desert is expanding every year for the last century, and now scientists are trying to reclaim it with something called the Great Green Wall. They planted a lot of trees. They're trying to reintroduce some um, herbivores. And I'll tell you this, I know this is gonna be speaking heresy, and I wonder out, but I wonder out loud, <laughs> if restoring buffalo to the American prairie might also be beneficial in the fight against climate change. Yeah, you know, my Iowa, Iowa farmer friends probably won't like that idea, but how's corn working out for them this year after that derecho? That derecho flattened field after field from one end of the state to the other. Without, you know, so without federal crop subsidies and publicly supported insurance, you know, as much of a third of Iowa's corn farmers would be out of business this year. So bison versus corn. You know, it's a discussion that we, that we ought to take seriously. There are ways to make a living off a of prairie that are sustainable, resilient, you know, as opposed to a heavily subsidized and questionable future growing corn. 
Because you know, corn's going to be knocked down by the next derecho. But ain't no derecho going to blow down a bison. This is Ed Fallon, folks, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks again to our local business partners, Gateway Market and Cafe. That's my grocery store. And they have takeout for lunch and supper every single day of the week, seven days a week. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis with 30 years of experience specializing in cutting edge, creative, environmentally friendly designs, including super insulated structures made from grain bins. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Okay, so I'd like to welcome uh, Charlie Wishman to the program. Uh, thanks for joining us, Charlie, as we celebrate Labor Day this week and last week and next week as well. Um, and in case folks missed it, last week we talked with uh, Iowa Postal Workers Union President Kimberly Carroll about the intense politicization within the U.S. Postal Service and how that, um, that might affect the November election. You know, later in today's program, we'll talk with Kathy Burns about agriculture and labor. And hey, a long forgotten fact, the very first guest on the Fallon Forum on September 21st, 2009, 11 years ago, uh, that's when we were on the, quote, very big station that's now gone totally corporate. Uh, That was um, farm labor leader Dolores Huerta, 11 years ago this month. And next week, we'll talk with Mark Cooper, president of the uh, South Central Iowa Federation of Labor. And today, we've got Charlie Wishman on the phone with us. Thanks for joining us, Charlie. He's the uh, president of the Iowa Federation of Labor. Charlie, good to have you. Hey, thank you very much for having me today, Ed. So, you know, again, there's there's concerns about you know some some of these some of these good things have been happening. Um, but what do you think? Is it um, is it overstated that labor has been making progress, or is there some no, real good I, stuff I, left? I think that that labor right now is making incredible progress. Um, on a number of fronts, um, and, and this is in so many ways, it's workers taking uh, control, the unionized and non-unionized workers that are um, that are they're taking collective action to um, w- whether it's you're talking about things like uh, West Virginia and, and Oklahoma teachers going on strike for for more education funding from the from their government. Right. Um, even up until um, uh, probably about a week or two ago, 
um, after the after more killings of uh, unarmed African American men, uh, you see wildcat strikes happening in professional sports. Um, those are unionized workers. Yeah. Um, and and on top of that, you, you there's just so many uh, that I've never seen so much activism going on right now. Um, and uh, on top of that, I think we're at about 65% of the uh, uh, of, of the American people have have a positive view of unions. Uh, but the bad news is that we only have about 11% of the workforce is unionized. So there's a huge disconnect, I think, between uh, organizing laws um, and between um, the, the amount of people who would join a union if given the opportunity. And, and that percentage of, uh, of the workforce that is unionized has dropped quite a bit uh, over the last several decades, correct? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and it's by design. I mean, every single amendment to the National Labor uh, Relations Act that was passed um, in, in, our, in our grandparents' time, uh, it, it has been more and more restrictive for uh, workers and allowing them to unionize. Um, and the answer to, to things in this country, um, we believe, is more collective bargaining. It's not less collective bargaining. Yeah, so, I mean, we've got, you know, you've got a confluence of problems right now. You've got these disastrous trade wars. We've got, in Iowa, we're still dealing with this derecho that flattened so much of Iowa not just corn, but infrastructure, uh, people's homes and businesses. And you got this COVID-19 pandemic and, uh, and the, you know, quote, essential workers that uh, are, of course, required to be out there as they should be. But um, there's lots of problems with that as well. It just doesn't seem like, uh, like uh, a lot of the power structure in government is making the connection between the importance of having those workers in place to deal with these crises, especially COVID, and paying them well, treating them right. It seems like there's, um, there's a disconnect there. Yeah, I mean, one of the terms I even really don't like is the term essential worker. I mean, when, you, when we talk about uh, the fact that we've got tens of millions of people missing from our economy, um, and, and, and our economy isn't functioning right now, it kind of shows you that every worker, all work has dignity, and every worker is uh, essential to this economy. Yeah, good point. But there's some things that uh, that our that our governor can be doing that our state legislature could have done uh, to make sure that uh, that people who are going to work are going to be safe. And it's really, really simple things. Um, really quickly, the 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 most the the easiest thing to to point out, I think is that our current OSHA laws are not set up to deal with infectious disease. Right. And so uh, when, a, when OSHA might walk into a, uh, a meatpacking plant, they have no choice but to give it a, a, a clean bill of health because there's no OSHA standard around um, a pandemic. And so they might look around and say, well, that ladder's hanging in the right place. Uh, things like that, the things that they're looking for. But right now, what we we have guidance from OSHA, but that's not enforceable. And was that so the same? What was that the governor to do is make sure that there is a OSHA standard that is enforceable. Uh, and we think that if that had been enacted earlier, that 
not as we we don't think we think that people died unnecessarily and got right. sick unnecessarily because of a failure of leadership from both the, the state and federal government. And isn't that certainly the case with the uh, the, the frontline workers at meatpacking plants? I mean, those are those are just dangerous jobs by design. Um, but when you've got them working in such you know close proximity, uh, I mean, and look at the outbreak. I mean, the worst outbreaks in the Upper Midwest initially, but right now we've got other outbreaks at colleges, universities, other things. But at first, it was the meatpacking plants, and uh, I don't know. I, I don't imagine OSHA speaks to uh, concerns about that uh, relevant to COVID either. Right, exactly, and 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 that's that's the whole point. Um, the, if you know the labor commissioner right now has the ability to put into uh, emergency rules a pandemic standard, um, right? Uh, uh, I believe as we speak, there's been one state that's done that, and that's the state of Virginia, which also has a lot of meatpacking facilities as well. Right. Um, but even during that whole time, some of the rhetoric that was used um, didn't seem to match up. They kept talking about, um, you know, you, you, we have to make these people essential workers and make sure they show up to work or you're not going to get your pork chops. Well, and at the same time, some of these companies were doing uh, record profits uh, to other markets. Um, I don't think anybody was in danger of... Uh, being able to get the food that they want uh, but there certainly were a whole lot of workers that were in danger of getting sick and unfortunately some of them even died yeah it's uh so um again the the, the situation in iowa it, it's different than some other states when it comes to COVID and and the state government's response uh, but there's probably i i imagine there's a lot of places around the country with similar concerns but but what is it, um, if we could get Governor Reynolds on this show right now, what would we tell her we'd like to see done to make sure that workers are being protected in this environment? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, two things that I think are incredibly important. We talked to Governor Reynolds very early on, um, along with the UFCW, uh, that, that we collected hundreds and hundreds of petitions and delivered them. Um, and it's all fallen on deaf ears. Uh, but number one, there needs to be a, a pandemic standard for OSHA. Uh, right now, OSHA is not set up to, um, to deal with these sorts of issues. It just was not envisioned in the past, but that doesn't mean that we can't fix that kind of an, of an error. And secondly, uh, you know, because, Ed, when, when it comes down to it, Worker health and safety is the same as community health and safety, and that's the same as when, whether you're talking about a meatpacking plant or whether you're talking about schools. Um, people are not going to leave uh, a, an illness at their workplace. They're going to they're going to take that illness home, right. and it's going to mm -hmm. spread throughout the community. Right, right. Uh, th but that also leads to a second point that we desperately need, and, and these issues aren't new for for folks in the labor movement or people who care about workers. But paid sick leave yeah. saves lives. Right, right. And paid sick leave is something that absolutely um, is something that, that our state legislature, uh, our federal government has to look at. And, al and sure. along with that, paid maternity and paternity leave as well. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I would add adoptive leave to that as well. Right. Um, Good. I, I, I think that the uh, these different kinds of of leaves are are incredibly important. But, you know, especially when we're talking about in the middle of a pandemic sure. right now, yeah. um, and you're talking about meatpacking workers that may not be able to uh, uh, just take time off, uh, leave policies are incredibly important. Uh, and if you're awaiting, uh, if you're trying to figure out if you have COVID, you, uh, you don't want to miss days of work, which means you might miss days of pay. Uh, you, you know, you may not be truthful about your symptoms yeah. because you have to be able to still at the end of the day, put that roof over your head and feed your family. We've got to run to a break. Uh, I want to sure. really th- thank you so much for joining us. Talking with Charlie Wishman. He's the president of the Iowa Federation of Labor. Charlie, thanks for all your work. And uh, again, for joining us on this program today. Folks, we'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, another Charlie, Charles Goldman, is going to join us. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, big oil and how as big oil continues to fail, it seems the Trump administration wants to continue to prop it up Soviet style. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Uh, a quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Ritual Cafe, uh, Fair Trade Tea, Fair Trade Coffee, of course, and an all vegetarian menu that's available through takeout at Ritual Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. They've got some live concerts going on in person, socially distanced. Also, they've got uh, those concerts available via live stream. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, again, welcome back to the program. Um, So, you know, big oil is in big trouble. And a lot of us aren't too upset about that because we need to make that transition to renewables and conservation ASAP. But, of course, Donald Trump, big fan of big oil, is propping it up Soviet-style. With me for that conversation, Dr. Charles Goldman. Hello, Charles. Welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? It's going all right. So, big oil. You're a big fan, too, I believe, right? <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's really interesting that, um, you know, Trump is down in Florida today, uh, obviously a major swing state, and he's touting his environmental record. Um, and among, among one of the things he's uh, talking about is the fact that 
his administration will not, in fact, allow uh, oil drilling off of the coast of Florida, uh, whereas, in fact, <laughs> it's been pushing that very thing right. until a couple days ago. Right. So what happened? What, what caused that change? Well, he's losing. I mean, he's losing the election. He needs Florida. Um, you know, his home state, despite the fact that he votes absentee in New York uh, <laughs> through the mail. Um, and so it, it's totally politics because it, it's really fascinating. Um, as you well know, uh, they want to open up the Arctic uh, Wildlife Reserve for more oil drilling. Right. And it really is their intent to uh, try to sell as many oil and gas leases offshore on the East Coast as they possibly can before they get turned out of government in January. Um, the irony is that, you know, oil companies have been shedding market value, have been shedding profits and shedding tens of thousands of jobs now for um, actually since 2008. And uh, the business model of oil and gas is doomed. And the only reason that it's still even a viable industry is, of course, uh, taxpayer-funded support okay, and wait, depreciation allowances and other things. So wait, wait since 2008, but, but, I mean, big oil and big gas have been expanding uh, incredibly. I mean, huge expansions. Look at all the pipelines being built. Look at all the new fracking wells being drilled. Well, it, it, how, can you, it, how can you say they've been... I mean, I, I think they're starting to fail now because of COVID, but what, what do you mean by been no, failing no, no. since In 2008? Fact, they've been, no, they've been, they've been non-profitable industry save for their ability to extract ransoms from the government. Oh, yeah. Uh, since 2008. So, then, 2008, and, and, remember, it, it, the, sure. the price of gas peaks, of a barrel of oil peaks, is $150 a barrel, which, of course, sends us into the recession. Um, and at this point, the demand for oil was already plunging by 2015. And by 2019, even before the pandemic, it was two and a half times less than it was in 2015. They're they're running what was originally the Amazon model. They lose money on every sale, but they make it up in bulk. Um, they're losing money hand over fist. They have tankers sitting offshore filled with oil that they can't sell, and um, it that in spite of what the commercials and everything else make you think, this is an industry that's doomed. But the real problem is, I mean, we we still we still use all this oil, we still use all this gas, and we don't have the infrastructure in place. To not use it. I mean, I'd love to be able to you know, heat our home. We haven't had to do that yet. I'd love to be able to heat our home with something other than fracked gas. I mean, it feels, I feel bad every time I turn the furnace on, every time I let a burner to, to, to you know, cook something on the stove. We don't have an infrastructure in place. So, yeah, they may have these assets sitting off the coast in tankers. You know, maybe they're unable to sell them right now. But what's to keep them from being able to maximize their profits down the road? Well, the only way to maximize your profits down the road is to make it a scarce commodity, and they're doing just the opposite. They're making it a, a commodity that, that's in a glut. And okay. It's been in a glut for years, even before COVID. Okay, so I, and I get that, but how does that how does that how does that indicate an industry that's failing? They're just an industry that have uh, have grown um, too successful. They can't borrow money. They can't borrow money, and they can't go for money on the stock exchange because of the divestment movement. I mean, these are these, this is being by you know this is being said by experts in the field. It's right. not being said by me. Right. As, you know, I get my it. review of their books. Yeah. Um, renewables are really cutting into their profits. The fact that you've got countries that are 
you know, much more forceful than we are about fuel economy, the fact that you have countries that are much more forceful about the transition to all electric cars um, and, and similar um, means that the, the time of, of, of oil is coming to an end. And the only thing keeping it afloat was up to this point, uh, banks and hedge firm, you know, hedge funds and others being willing to, willing to loan them money. Well, but the, nobody's willing to loan the money. But, but really, the only, the only thing keeping, the only thing that has ever made gas, oil, and coal, for that matter, possible are the huge government subsidies, the, the tax, a tax code that favors the industry over, over other alternatives. That, that's, always, right. that's always been the formula for success. And now, of course, but, as you said, Trump is going even further uh, under the guise of uh, economic relief for those struggling because of the pandemic. He's given them additional um, largesse. You know. Right. Yeah, except that, that the, um, the fact of the matter is that, for instance, it, you know, the effect of Donald Trump, as, as Rick Wilson you know, titled his book, Everything that, tu- that Trump Touches Dies, <laughs> Um, <laughs> the opposite here, minus. Here's a, here's a fact about his intervention in the environmental field. More U.S. coal capacity has been retired under Donald Trump's the first three years than were retired under Barack Obama's entire second term. And, and Barack Obama was seen as a very anti-coal president. Yes, I remember right? the signs when I on the Great March for Climate Action as we were walking through uh, Appalachia. The signs uh, tell Obama to stop his war on coal. <laughs> Correct. And I lived there. I mean, yeah. remember, I lived in West That's Virginia right, did, for yeah. seven years, you know, and so I, I, I lived through that period of time, uh, you know, coming into it. And um, but the fact of the matter is, is that even bad government policy under a completely misguided and foolish president, he's it's like what the president's trying to do is like bringing back the buggy whip industry. Um, <laughs> we need, you know, the point is that However you want to, however you want to couch this move, you know, move to the future is we need an administration that's looking to the future, and the future is clearly the market is even telling you this. I mean, where are the Republicans, the big free marketeers? You know, the price of of oil is telling you it's not a valuable asset anymore. It doesn't compete well anymore with renewables. Coal certainly doesn't compete. Okay, with so and I, and I I agree, but I, I think again the government's response, especially under Donald Trump, is going to be to you know, put whatever amount of taxpayer money is needed into the industry to keep Rex Tillerson and Kelsey Warren and these other huge tycoons fat and wealthy. That's well, going to be I his response. But then that that is their response, and it's it's obviously a stupid response because at the same time it's destroying the very industry. By making it produce more, it, it, it is. This is as I as I told you, this is the Soviet Union all over again. Yeah, they send people to work in factories to make things that they would never use, just solely because they send people to work in factories. So we're essentially producing a item whose extraction is extraordinarily destructive to the environment. Obviously, not just the environment in totality, but most especially to the environment locally where fracking goes on and oil and and gas drilling goes on. Um, We're destroying the environment solely to to create some semblance of a a workforce to do nothing. And and we build more roads to continue our seeming reliance on this. Yeah. Um, That's what that's the whole point. 
This is socialism. This is, in, in fact, it's worse. It's the anathema of the Republicans. It's communism, right? It's it's malinvestment. So how, and, how, how come how come how come good, well-intentioned Republicans, and I believe they are. There are some out there. There, there are very few. Good, well, well how, how come they don't get that? How come they don't get? How come they can't see that this is basically, again, as you said, a Soviet-style, you know, corporate prop up by a centralized government with plenty well, of like plenty of kick, question, plenty of kickbacks you know it's it's like asking the question why don't they see 95% of what the Trump administration does as counterproductive for the future i don't uh, i don't know they fear they fear his base that's all that's all i can say you know and 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 no one's willing to use their position of power in government to think about the future beyond two to three months in the future, yeah, you know, and that's the that's the problem in our electoral system, which is it, it's all about recency. It's all about what's what's coming up immediately next. I mean, to to understand the big macro picture would require that you might be willing to sacrifice your political future for something that would matter to your children. You know, I mean, the United States politicians love to talk about they have family values and you know they worry about the future. Yeah, the future for them is is two weeks from now. <laughs> um, well, you know, two years actually. If you're a congressman, two years. If you're right. well, I mean, if, if your job as a congressman in the United States, as soon as you hit your office, start making calls for your next campaign. Yeah, you it's, know, raising it, money for your next. The, campaign. the amount of the amount of time spent raising money is obscene. Uh, Charles, we've got to run to a quick break. Um, Charles is going to stick with us, folks. When we come back, we're going to talk about cancel culture and how it's eating its own. See Margaret Sanger for details. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. Hey, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, we the folks broadcasting from uh, Des Moines, Iowa, the coronavirus capital of the U.S., well, hopefully that'll pass, and we will once again return to being the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. I'd like that. Hey, a quick shout-out to our nonprofit sponsors. Thanks to Bold Iowa, Fighting Climate Change, and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. Check out boldiowa.com. Uh, thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. Check out birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Okay, so... um. I never heard the word "you are canceled." The expression "you are canceled" till just uh, maybe last year, and when somebody canceled me. Um, <laughs> but uh, Charles, I mean, hey, Charles, maybe you've been canceled too. I don't know. Have you been canceled? Uh, not that I know of. 
Okay, well, I'll, I'll see if I can work on that and get you canceled. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's a great feeling. It really feels like you've arrived. But this, <laughs> this cancel culture, um, as you pointed out, uh, has been kind of uh, cannibalistic. Uh, and now down goes Margaret Sanger, who, you know, has been recognized for a long time as uh, having founded Planned Parenthood and done great things for reproductive freedom. But apparently there was a darker side, and that darker side is what now has prevailed, and and suddenly Margaret Sanger is, is persona non grata. Yeah, it, it, it's really unfortunate because the problem, the problem with cancel culture is that it is promulgated, for the most part, by uh, college-educated, uh, generally liberal-leaning, um, generally whites. And... It's predicated on a, a view of human behavior that is totally simplistic. It, there's no complexity in cancel culture. Essentially, and you know, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, you know, for instance, there was a, a, a group that wanted to take down a statue of you know, Ulysses Grant because he had owned a slave at one time. Hmm. Uh, even though, number one, the slave wasn't his. Number two, he had uh, actually given that slave freedom at a time when Grant had nothing. I mean, he was, he was as destitute probably as, you know, economically as many of the slaves were. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, he did, you know, give years of his life to crush the South uh, to end slavery, but that wasn't good enough for some of the cancel culture uh, mentors. And, you know, that's, the reality is, is people aren't whom we want them to be. You know, almost everybody at some point in their life probably some point in the day is a hypocrite. And um, this notion of purity uh, has been, to my mind, highly destructive of the, the left political, you know, groups in this country who demand purity of soul and intent and everything else and end up losing on all those issues. Well, it's, it's, it's not just a demand for purity in the present. It's uh, going back to, you know, 50, 100, 200 years ago and say, okay, those folks have to be pure by our modern standards correct. or they're right. canceled. That's correct. And, and so okay. here's, the issue with, here's the issue with Sanger. Okay, so, so Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, what was her driving motivation? Her driving motivation was, to some degree, anti-Catholicism because of the, their inter, the Catholic interference in what she considered the main pathway to female liberation which was the right to decide when and if they were going to have children. So her, you know, her first commitment was to talk about birth control in the 1920s, the time when nobody was talking about birth control. Right. There wasn't any feminist movement for her to hide in. There was the suffragette movement, which was not necessarily equivalently feminist in that sense. But she became involved in a movement which was very common among people who I think a lot of liberals would consider, uh, you know, fellow travelers, and that was the eugenics movement of the 1920s. And in the view of present people who are college-educated but are not particularly educated, they see the eugenics movement as equal to what Hitler used the eugenics movement to do, which was the justification for, you know, racial sure, purification right, right. in the 1930s. They think that was the eugenics movement in the 1920s. Sure, there were probably people in the eugenics movement who were racist, but there were also people in the eugenics movement who, you know, were people like Helen Keller, 
George Bernard Shore, John Maynard Keynes, Winston Churchill, uh, one of the the woman who got a Nobel Peace Prize for the, being the architect of the social welfare state, hardly a conservative racist. Who was that? Um, a woman by the name of Alvar Myrdal. Okay. Um, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, maybe, maybe he was a racist, but, um, you know, <laughs> the, the point being that the eugenics movement was a popular movement among many seemingly liberal intellectuals in the 20s, which was founded mostly on the idea that one of the impediments to moving out of poverty was the inability, number one, to control the number of children you had, and number two, to to have multiple children who either due to, you know, prenatal or postnatal conditions had uh, weaknesses, you know, genetic or otherwise. Mm. Now, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying I'm comfortable with that idea as a person in the 2020s, but the point is, is that was a movement which, in our interpretation of the cancel culture's interpretation, was an anti. It was a racist movement, and one of the one of the things that came out was this this claim that you know Sanger was anti-black, in spite of the fact that throughout her life she worked, you know, with with black politicians and black leaders to get her ends yeah. of, you know, women's freedom to choose about contraception. So, so you know, and, and, people and, like Dubois and, and Clayton Powell and others. Okay, so, so I mean, I, I mean, this has been fairly recent, too, that pressure built on Planned Parenthood to disassociate themselves from Margaret Sanger, including removing a statue. Um, what I'm trying well, to removing so, her, removing her name from their didn't, headquarters. Didn't they? Didn't, didn't they? Ex, didn't they ask a statue as well? I don't. I don't remember that. Okay, but, I'm, I'm. Yeah. Yeah. But they removed her name from the headquarters. Well, I think her statue was just like a big birth control pill. So. <laughs> okay. All right. It, it wasn't a condom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there's lots of possibilities there. Okay, but absolutely. So, so uh, you know we. I, I would be surprised that there would be enough um, support for that within the Planned Parenthood governing structure within the board of directors for them to want to uh, take that take that, uh, that 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 step. Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting point. Um, it, the it, it became part of a movement against the governing board in New York of Planned Parenthood, which has 22 members, but only one of them was African American. Hmm. Two of them were Asian and two were Hispanic. So they felt that the board was unrepresentative, and this was sort of part of the power struggle to get the board to be uh, more representative. Now, what's interesting is, whom are they supposed to represent? If, if I asked you how many Planned Parenthood clinics are in uh, African-American neighborhoods, what would you estimate? Uh, I'm not sure. Majority, majority African-American neighborhoods. There, I, and I lived in a majority African-American neighborhood for 19 years, raised my kids there. There is not one there. Okay, so what would your guess be nationwide? Oh, nationwide? I, I, well, I don't know, 200. Okay, well, percentage-wise, 65% of Planned Parenthoods are in majority white neighborhoods. Okay. So the, here again, it, it, the question is, what what is the number? This is a, this is a, a you know I think a reasonable question to cancel culture people. All right, so what is 
the right number of people on this board who should be people of color. If two-thirds of the clinics are in majority white neighborhoods, then it would seem to me that two-thirds of the board being white is perfectly representative of where these clinics are. Well, that might be a that, – that's an odd way to determine representation, I think, Charles. Uh, <laughs> well, but who is your constituency? This is not. I, the, I, would, I would. I would think your constituency would be the entire 350 roughly million uh, Americans. Okay, so you that, would say then. Then you would use a a number based on population. I'd keep it simple right. and go with census data. Okay, that's fine. I mean, that's fine. I'm just simply saying is that per, as soon per, as you start doing things like this. Yeah. where we want this to be representative. It's just the same issue with the police. Right, providing there's not, a couple of Catholics on the board. No. <laughs> that's and that's the other question. That's the other question. Is we're only using race as making the board representative, right? What? Why is that the only characteristic well, that makes I mean, no, that yeah, board yeah, there, representative? There should be representation based on you know, geography as well. Um, you know, and it, yeah, you're right. You can get carried away with that, but uh, right. there I are mean, a few it, basic it, categories that make sense. And I think I certainly think geographic is one of them. Otherwise, you're going to have a board entirely represented by the two coastal regions. You know, right? What's left in them after the fires? Well, well um, the fires and the floods, and you know, they'll right. all they'll all be moving to the Midwest eventually. No, but what I'm saying is this is this is the this is the intellectual dead end you run into. In, in this kind of cancel culture mentality, which is, okay, what do you do next? And, and your point being well taken, which is you can't change history. Now, you could argue that history is written by the winners, and therefore most of history, and, and particularly women's and, and blacks' role in history, has been sanitized because they weren't the winners. Yeah, the good, the, the good history books are not written by the winner, winners. Uh, see, Howard Zinn, see Howard Zinn for details, or Bury yeah, My, no, Bury no, my Heart at Wounded Knee. Exactly. Yeah. But that's my point, which is that that's it. You know, you can you can win the intellectual war and lose the battles that are important. Yeah. And and to me, my my critique of cancel culture is not that they're pulling down Americans her, America's heritage when they pull down traitors like Confederate general statues. My problem is it's a loser, in Trump's words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it it really is going to win you yeah. election. Well, Charles, I, I got I got to run to I got to cancel you, Charles. I got to run to a break. Okay. Um, <laughs> Charles Goldman with us, folks. Uh, thanks for tuning in, uh, joining us today, Charles. We'll have you back in a few weeks, uh, folks. When we come back, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to continue our talk about labor. We're going to discuss how labor unions continue to fight to protect farm workers. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual.
Sarah Medfellow with you here, folks. Uh, Kathy Burns, our guest in this segment of the program. A quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and a great place for lunch and dinner through takeout. That'll change someday when the COVID thing passes. But for right now, seven days a week, you can get Gateway Takeout for lunch and supper. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small. Well, not as great as a woolly mammoth, but, but everything up to a woolly mammoth. She's been doing that for 30 years. That's Kim Holding at Story County Veterinary Clinic. All right, again, welcome back to the program. Ed Fallon with you here. Kathy Burns joining us. Um, we're going to talk about how labor unions continue to fight for farm workers across the country and a little bit of an historical perspective on that as well. Labor Day was just, speaking of history, recent history, we just passed Labor Day weekend. And the, um, the sales at the grocery stores, I'm sure we're all about get your food on sale and have your big picnic and celebrate the day off. And the ironic part of that is that a lot of the people who help that food get to the stores and get to your table may not have had enough to buy food for their own picnics. So, And they may not have even had Labor Day off. They may have been out on the fields. Right, so. right. Um, so historically, um, people in America have just wanted to have the cheapest labor possible to produce food. And we're going to talk Because they wanted bit. the cheapest food possible. They wanted the cheapest yeah. food possible. And uh, an interesting uh, history of food production in America goes way back to before this land was called the United States. And when people in trading companies were trying to get indentured servants come and work it kind of tricked them into coming to this land to do some work. And this is an advertisement from an old uh, indentured servant. To go to Virginia under indentures for a few years. One, a young man who understands Latin, Greek, and mathematics to serve as a tutor in a gentleman's family. <laughs> Two, a lad who has served an apprenticeship as a surgeon to live with one of his own profession. And three... Two gardeners who understand their craft well, particularly the work in a garden. And four, those properly recommended will meet with suitable encouragement on applying to Bouchard and Simpson merchants in Glasgow. So I bet the person who was skilled in Latin, Greek, and mathematics did not end up doing Latin, Greek, and mathematics tutoring once they got to the U.S., so you're saying that was an advertisement to lure people here to be indentured farm workers? Yes, and the labor was wow. was cheap or almost nothing, mm. and people were kept on the farms and doing that work. And when that wasn't providing quite enough labor for the people who were starting to get rich off of that, uh, of course, the next move was to go to mainly Africa and mm. just grab mostly black people in Africa mm. and bring them to the um, land what was the United States yeah. to become slaves. Well, part of the problem is you've got really, really hard work that, uh, that you know, requires you to be mobile. Uh, you, you, you're always on the move, um, and you're getting paid often by the piece. Uh, I've done that work before. I worked at an apple orchard in Wisconsin. Um, then it's, it's really hard work. You're up on a ladder all the time. You're going up and down. And, you know, it's, it's so repetitive. I mean, I remember having dreams at night of my hands going up in front of my face and picking an apple. 
But you know, there's that incentive to try to work really fast so mm-hmm. that you can get, because you're getting paid by the piece. Mm-hmm. So the faster you work, the more you make. And, you know, and, and it discourages you from having breaks, from, you know, from, from taking care of yourself during the workday. Right. Right. It's a, and I know there, I know there's some efforts to try to change some of that. And I know there's, you know, continuing to be, I mean, thanks in part to Cesar Chavez, mm-hmm. Dolores Huerta, other, you know, other Latino leaders who back in the 60s yeah. put together the Farm Workers Union. Right. And uh, Chavez's work was originally connecting the work of Catholic Church ministry and the, the labor uh, effort as well and justice issues. And I, I believe that when he switched to, uh, from calling calling a help for farm laborers charity to calling it justice, right. which is what it is, that the movement started to take off. And this is a justice issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, yeah uh, uh, workers are drastically underpaid. And I'm, I'm looking at the uh, website for National Agriculture's uh, According to a National Agricultural Workers Survey, uh, the average total income for farm workers currently be- is between fifteen thousand and seventeen thousand a year for individuals, and twenty thousand to twenty-four thousand a year for a family. Mm-hmm. And that income has not increased since two thousand nine. That income also includes work that people do off the farm to supplement their income and try to have at least a livable wage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know the 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 larger farmers. I mean, uh, you know, obviously for small farmers, you know, they 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 aren't um, dependent upon seasonal labor. But uh, you know, these these large farms, they they part of the part of the money they make is off the labor. And I me- I remember having that experience mm-hmm. when I worked. I also worked on a on a berry farm for a bit, and I remember calculating it out that uh, if uh, everybody who came picked their own and the owner of that farm merely kept what that visitor paid them, uh, they would make a lot less than if they had uh, people like me come in and pick pre-picked berries. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the, 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 the customer coming in to pick their own earned that farmer less money than the customer coming in and buying a, a you know a quart of berries that had been picked by a lower paid wager, wage earner. <laughs> so, you know, the, you know, you, you ideally you would think, well, okay, why don't that, why, why shouldn't that cost, why, why shouldn't that, um, that income be the same? You know, from the farmer's point of view, whether you're making uh, a certain amount of money off uh, a, 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 um, a quart of berries sold directly to the customer um, or one that they pre-picked them, or one that, one that they picked themselves, why does it matter at all? Mm-hmm. You're making the same. Mm-hmm. You should be making the same, but instead, no. It's set up so that you may, the, the the owner of that operation makes more if they have to if they're able to pay somebody cheap wages to pick them. So it's a problem. It's a it's a real problem. And part of it, is, as you say, goes back to the fact that Americans want cheap food. Mm-hmm. And again, I know that a lot of people can only afford cheap food right now. And I know that cheap food is heavily subsidized. Yep. Sorry, corn farmers. Corn, you know, uh, high, high fructose corn syrup, a very highly subsidized product. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at some point we need to do a real double take on, on what we've created and figure out a way to make it work a lot better for the workers, for the environment, for the f- quality of the food, and eventually for the consumer as well. Well, it, even the idea of benefits for your labor, such as insurance and paid days off, those are 
sorely lacking for mm -hmm. a lot of agricultural workers. And um, the rationale being that they have to go find work as it progresses across the country. They can't just have one employment throughout the year. So a lot of a lot of people are not, they're working full-time and more, and they're not considered full-time labor. So that's another issue. People getting sick, they're not able to uh, take days off. They're not able to rest. They're not able to have maternity and paternity leave. Uh, so a lot of a lot of injustices going out. And a lot of those bigger farms too, of course, they, they heavily rely on pesticides and the workers are getting exposed to those as well. Mm -hmm. So, But there are things, there are movements afoot, I believe, to try to improve conditions. Well, one of them is the shop local effort. And mm. that's something that you can do personally in your own food consumption practices. You can go to small local markets. You can ask your grocers where the food comes from, if it's grown ethically, sustainably, and with, um, with safety practices in place for the workers. Nationally, you can look at the United Farm Workers Union, ufw.org, and in Iowa specifically, Iowa Farmers Union at iowafarmersunion.org are some places to go for more information. Uh, there's also a Fairness for Farm Workers Act that is, uh, is, is you know, it was introduced in the House in 2019. Um, the bill amends the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. That's a long time ago yeah. with respect to agricultural workers. So some improvements um, in the works, but they need support. Yeah, you know, uh, and again, all of us shopping local, we're buying our food directly from farmers. That's not improving conditions for the workers on these huge farms. It's still the right thing to do. It's the best thing mm -hmm. to do for your health, for the land, for a local economy. Uh, and eventually, ideally, in, in my view, you know, we would, be, we, we would move beyond this idea that centralized, large, chemically intensive farms that rely on huge numbers of migrant laborers. We'd move beyond the, the idea that that's a good thing, that that's something that we should. I mean, and the truth is we subsidize that. You know, because I, I know that a lot of the a lot of the immigrant families who come to this country, certainly those that I've met here in in Iowa, a lot of them want to farm. They don't they don't want to work for some big farmer mm -hmm. at crappy wages. They want to be in like any like most people who farm. They want to be in control of their own destiny. They want to do that. And you know, I, I'm I'm glad to see some nonprofits trying to give opportunities for farmers to do that. I mean, there right. are big impediments: right. land, mm -hmm. um, inputs. Expertise. There's a lot of impediments, but I think you know the the desire is there among that community to, to be well, their own farmers. There are some opportunities here in Iowa with the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, SILT, right? Hmm. Uh, so that has a yeah. number of other economic and environmental uh, things wrapped in. Well, thanks for joining us today, uh, folks, and again, thanks, Kathy, for uh, tune for 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 stepping in on this this segment of the program. And uh, again, thanks to our production team, which does include Kathy and also Sherry Herdina. Thanks to you, our audience. Appreciate the stations in Iowa, KHOI and KICI, Iowa City and Ames, and around the country that rebroadcast this program. You can check us out as a podcast on the Fallon Forum website and this segment on Facebook. This is Ed Fallon, your host, thanking you for joining us.